We've remote viewed this. We've tried to figure out, we've tried to track down all of the data leading up to a reveal at the end of this episode about whether this vision was actually real. And we've got a lot of data along the way to kind of unravel with you guys to go on this story with us. I mean, it's pretty strange, couldn't it? but he's, he's doing a lot of work to have it rewritten into the history of what really happened at that battle. It's cracking. Yeah, the, the other evidence begins to crack uh, the narrative. Well, you know, the, the, the victor writes the history books, so, you know, you might as well make yourself look good. And so what, John, did, I think you guys looked into this vision, like what, what happened here? Emperor Constantine was said to have had a vision of something in the sky which convinced him to convert to Christianity. Or at least, that's how the tale goes. But what was the whole story? After the Battle of the Milvian Bridge between Constantine and Maxentius, the Arch of Constantine was erected to celebrate his victory. But we wanted to know why were pagan scenes depicted in the Arch? Were the old gods' ways secretly incorporated into Constantine's rule? The ruling elite at the time were devout followers of the cult of Mithraism, so who was Constantine really loyal to? When we started uncovering historical discrepancies, sun worship, Zoroastrianism, and evidence of bull sacrifice, it brought into question the mainstream stories of Constantine. Has the ruler been put on a pedestal and actually become a figure of worship today, adopted from even older objects of devotion. Hear remote viewing data from me, John Vivanco, and investigative research from Rob Counts. Your mind is seriously going to be blown with this. So join the Metaphysical Podcast for a show that's out of this world. Are you listening to the Metaphysical Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else? Leave us a five-star rating and review. It's going to help us, help us a lot to reach more people. And remember, you got to like, follow, and subscribe on YouTube, Rumble, Ganjing World, Twitter, and Facebook. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, good, doing good. This is going to be a good one. I'm like kind of chomping at the bit here, just a tiny bit, because there's so much like packed into it, into this whole thing, which is just mind-blowing yes yeah uh constantine the first um emperor who professed christianity some call him the first holy roman emperor uh though that term could be debated for those of you that don't know uh, emperor constantine was considered to have been the first to profess christianity and had this fabled vision uh at the battle of the Milivian bridge uh with a definitive defeat over Maxentius, the emperor. And so the real question here is, was Constantine a Roman emperor, really a devout Christian that everyone believes him to be? And keep watching because at the very end of this video, we're going to, re we've, re we've, we've remote viewed this. We've tried to figure out, we've tried to track down all of the data leading up to a reveal at the end of this episode about whether this vision was actually real. And we've got a lot of data along the way to kind of unravel with you guys to go on this story with us. You know, I think it's important to have a short discussion about Roman emperors before we get into Constantine. Because, um, yeah, Roman emperors, aside from a few, uh, like Marcus Aurelius and, and a couple of others, don't really have a great track record with being good guys. Yeah, no. 
Nope, not at all. I mean, when you I, look at- I would say that like not a lot of rulers have a great track record. <laughs> I agree, but I think the Romans really stand out here in terms of yeah. like narcissistic, bizarre, psychotic tendencies. I mean, beyond the normal kind of evil. Um, yeah. I decided to do a quick search the other day on the craziest uh, Roman emperors. And uh, what I got back was actually quite shocking. I think a lot of people consider Nero to be the most evil, which probably true. I mean, the guy persecuted Christians. He was the one that instituted the persecution of Christians. We're talking about some of the worst types of activity going on where, you know, he's allowing Christians to be eaten by wild beasts in the Colosseum. Um, <clears throat> you know, this guy decided to beat his pregnant wife to death for no reason. Uh, just, I mean, and then Caligula who came before him, arguably even worse. I mean, this guy was like, if he would get bored, like this one time he got bored, I guess, and just decided to have a bunch of people killed for no reason, thrown overboard into the water, then made sure that they drowned. He would order people to have, uh, like this one time during a, um, I guess, uh, an event at the Coliseum. He's bored. He, he asks one of his guys just to toss a bunch of the people in the front row into the, into the ring and they all get eaten. You know, he would, he would, he Caligula, this guy would dine like the most extravagant meals whilst watching people getting beheaded and sawed in half. That's just, that is just insane. I mean, like that, that, that's like the deep, dark depths of the Kali Yuga. That's like the, that's like the worst time period that you can ever actually live in. So, I, I, Hey, what I, is the Kali, Kali Yuga? Tell everyone at home in case they don't know. Uh, the Kali Yuga is this sort of conceptual, uh, this idea of how, um, time works and cycles, great epochs, great cycles work that comes out of uh, the Rig Veda, Veda type Hinduism. Like this is way before Hinduism when this stuff originated, but it, it it's basically, and actually a lot of cultures and religions have the same idea. They just right. use different words for it. And there are four great epochs that last around 12,000 years. And they seem to follow the processional equinox where, where, <clears throat> where, in in the first age it's golden it's the golden age everybody's got a very strong connection to god to source they don't have to work for their spirituality um then after twelve thousand years in between the time frame of one age ending and a new age beginning there's some kind of reset or decimation happening on the planet then the next age considered the silver age would be uh you have a little less connection to divinity to source and so you have to work a little bit more and you start to get egotism involved in things uh selfishness self-identity then the bronze age the next age um more of that is gone and then finally in the kali yuga it's supposed to be the darkest twelve thousand years that humans go through in that epoch and 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 if you follow the kali yuga and that idea that age would have been literally like in the middle of it. It would have been the darkest of the dark times where there's just absolutely no regard for any human life. 
full, complete, utter service to yourself, and that's it. And so you get these psychopathic rulers, absolutely psychopathic rulers that only desire power and control over others. Yeah, so th this article is actually really good here. Um, <clears throat> Seven Most Notorious and Excessive Roman Emperors. Now, this painting is really interesting as well, because this is uh, a painting, I think, from the 19th century, 1830, 1876. Um, it's, it's, Nero, it's, it's Nero. It's the Nero Empire, and he's putting these Christians that are over there on the right, he's about to light them all on fire in front of all of these people. Like it's just showing the extravagance and the excessiveness of this, of this empire. Right. You know, this like, it's like, you know, what year was this supposedly Nero? What year was he ruling? What year? I think he was like basically around 30, 30 AD in there. 30 oh, AD. Right. Right. And then, and, and then later on, is 54 to 58. Okay. All right. And then later on, you know, you get to the, the Catholic Inquisition, which really was not unlike what was happening earlier. You know? Yeah. It's that, it's that whole thing, you know, it's that really that whole thing that the, the oppressed will become the oppressors. Yeah. It really just cycles like that constantly. So here's Nero, um, <clears throat> fully named Nero Claudius Caesar. Uh, okay. Now he's, he's also remembered. Okay. So there's a couple of things, right? So, um, his wife, he had his wife Octavia executed, his mother Agrippina stabbed and murdered, personally kicked to death his lover, Papeia, while she was pregnant with his child, um, spent exorbitantly, built a hundred foot fall bronze, a uh, hundred foot tall bronze statue of himself, um, also remembered for being strangely obsessed with music, sang and played the lyre, um, you know, just weird weird stuff here okay now if you go down or go up i think it is to caligula caligula was another name his name was gaius caesar augustus germanicus but caligula meant little soldier's boot and this came from his father like nicknamed him that which is weird because caligula just sounds like i don't know it sounds evil even like when you <laughs> when you say it it even sounds messed up he, you know he's supposed to supposedly have done some some positive things uh, in his early days, but he would kill anyone when it pleased him, spent exorbitantly, was obsessed with perverse sex, proclaimed himself to be a living God. Now, if you scroll down, there's like a little space here in the, um, in the article, a painting is missing or something. All right. Now he's like bloodthirsty. He, he had an insatiable bloodthirst, killing for mere amusement. He had a number of spectators uh, thrown into the water, as I said. When some tried to cling to the ship's rudders, Caligula had them dislodged with hooks and oars so they would drown. On another occasion, he got so bored that he had his guards throw a whole section of the audience into the arena during the intermission so they would be eaten by wild beasts. He also allegedly executed two consuls who just, hey, I forgot your birthday. Sorry. Oh, I've done that before. Sure. Yeah. Well, you're not dead though, thankfully. Oh, and then some of these other emperors were like the the type of like sexual acts that they were committing. Like one of them dressed up, who was a he was a man, he was dressing up like a woman, he was having sex with everything. I mean everything. You know, like it it was just we're talking about excessiveness like we can't imagine. You know, and so sometimes when people are like 
complaining about how things are nowadays, I'm kind of like, yeah, but yeah, right. It is real bad back then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. What was the average lifespan as well? It was like 30 something years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why I have a hard time when people are like, oh, you know, uh, this Rome, this, this Caesar was really good. I would be like, well, was he like, you know, let's, we might want to do some due diligence there because like, I feel like Marcus Aurelius was a good guy. He kind of speaks for himself. You can look at his life. You can find out he was trying to be a good King. Not all of them were like him. I mean, and so when, when people are very willing to accept Constantine as a just emperor, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, he was a ruler first. So was he, was he playing both sides or was he genuinely good? Right. Well, you know, I mean, this is the thing. So think about early humans and and how how humans would survive in a in basically a hostile natural world. People would gravitate to the one who was the most violent, and the one who was most violent was a warlord and probably the most psychotic. And so these people became the kings, and they're basically just warlords. That's what they are because they take, they kill. And everybody crowds around them because violence seems to ultimately win and win over people through fear. So, so all like a person who is holy, who is really of the good for the most part, at least back then, is not going to come into a position where they're going to have power because it really takes violence to have power with, with the way things were, the way, the way things are still. Um, I mean, you, you go and raid other people's, uh, villages yeah. to survive. Pillage. Yeah. And the person who leads that, who has, who is the most violent is going to end up being the warlord, which is going to end up being the king. Well, and, 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 and it comes to down to this battle. Okay. So what happened back in the day is how Rome was set up. The Roman empire was spanning across the Southern part of Europe, like all across it, you know? And so we're we're talking about a massive land area. There's three rulers. There's Constantine, his dad, who was out there in York, England, for whatever reason. And then in the center, Maxentius, like a very powerful general, was ruling. So Constantine's father dies. His his father dies. He gets word of it, and and it's on. So Maxentius and Constantine now are at odds with one another for who's going to rule what lands. I guess you could call it a civil war breaks out. And Maxentius, who was a powerful general, still wasn't enough to overtake Constantine and his and his soldiers. So this battle takes place called the Battle of the Melivian Bridge. Now, this Malivian Bridge still exists to this day. You can go there. You can go stand on this bridge. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I was amazed to see like uh, video footage and photographs of this bridge that was literally built probably previous to 300 uh, AD. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. They don't build things like they used to, man. No, that engineering is amazing. It is. And I mean, that's why it's like when people are always 
when we're talking about Jesus and like the nativity and how almost it looks like everyone was like a shepherd or something back in the day. It's like boy, the, the Roman Empire was flourishing. Like it was probably one of the craziest places that's ever existed in terms of like, imagine seeing that, you know, like sprawled out in front of you, like the, em the empire, like what did Rome look like? It looked amazing, you know? So this battle of the Malivian Bridge between Maxentius and Constantine, Maxentius gets defeated, ends up, I guess, drowning in this river. And so what does Constantine do? Constantine has his head removed and shows his head in front of everyone, which is what warlords do, basically, and you know, starts calling this guy a tyrant. Now, what's weird is that Constantine, as he's ruling, he absorbs Maxentius's soldiers. There, a lot of Christian historians think that Constantine was Christian. They think that he became Christian because of this battle, that he had a vision of the cross in the sky. He goes, and after he's praying all devoutly, he, and, and he has this vision, he starts painting crosses on people's shields, his warriors go out there and defeat the tyrant Maxentius. I but think there he are, didn't he even have like a dream or something where Jesus came to him. This was the vision. This was the vision. I'm not, okay. I'm not sure if it was a dream and a vision or just a vision, but they usually call it Constantine's vision. I see. Right. So he has this vision, you know, and it's 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 a defeat for Maxentius. Now, any ruler who's absorbing an army is going to be getting information about what their common beliefs are, right? And a lot of people think that it's this like, this guy is becoming devout and he's seeing things and, and because he's seeing things that he is special and, and has this like right to rule. I mean, even the way Christians describe this vision is, and no offense to anyone, I really like, please don't take offense to this, but it seems a little naive to me when we're looking at Roman empire, like Roman emperors on a whole. Okay. So here's a, um, here's a, 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 an excerpt from Christian history Institute. Okay. Accordingly, Constantine called on him with earnest prayer to reveal to him who he was and stretch forth his right hand to help him in his present difficulties. Now, this is Constantine praying, right? And while he was thus praying with fervent entreaty, a most extraordinary sign appeared to him from heaven, something which it might have been hard to believe had the story been told by any other person. But since the victorious emperor himself long afterwards declared it to the writer of this history, when he was honored with his acquaintance and society and confirmed the, his statement by an oath, who could hesitate to believe it, especially since other testimonies have established its truth? He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the sign of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, quote, by this symbol, you will conquer. He was struck with amazement by the sight, and his whole army witnessed the miracle. Because that <laughs> sounds like a, a sounds like a like a children's book. 
it's just right. Yeah. So, so in this excerpt, they mention um, this person, the writer of this history. So, who was the writer of this history? Well, it was a guy named uh, Asebius, I believe his name was from Caesarea. But um, Constantine brings in this um, this right hand man who is informing him on Christianity, on the Christian belief system. So he's doing his due diligence and finding out about it. Now, the first uh, writing of the events that took place at the Battle of the Malivian Bridge, there was no mention of this vision. Later on, Constantine had this written into the history, and Asibius then told everyone in in Christendom about this and spread it to everyone. So yep. <laughs> that is a little bit strange to begin with, right? Like we're seeing some indications of him playing the game, so to speak. Yeah, it's cracking. Yeah, the, the other evidence begins to crack. <laughs> Uh, the narrative. Well, you know, the, the, the victor writes the history books. So, you know, right. you might as well make and yourself look good. Might as well make yourself look good, especially when you see a growing number of Christians. Christianity isn't going anywhere. More and more people are practicing Christianity. And he sees this happening across the empire. So if you can't control it, persecution didn't work. Why not embrace it? When Constantine was in power, he creates this thing called... Uh, the Arch of Constantine, right? He he wedges the Arch of Constantine between a few different um, like important things in Rome, but it's right next to the Colosseum. So the Arch of Constantine goes up right next to the Colosseum, and he takes he takes like uh, scenes from previous monuments and puts them on this arch. For thirty years. No one was even able to get close to this thing. People were worried that that it would get it would get destroyed, right? Um, <laughs> for thirty years, recently, really? recently <laughs> for thir- yeah, for thirty years, like no one was able to able to get close to this. But recently, people have been allowed to kind of go in and take more record of of like what was on there, right? Now the arch, of course, shows all of these amazing scenes from Constantine's rule and from his definitive battle of the Malivian Bridge, right? So if he was really a Christian, you would expect that when people finally got close to this arch, that they would see all kinds of evidence of a devout Christian as it was explained in this, you know, uh, Christian History Institute article. There was not one Christian symbol on this arch. And furthermore, there was all kinds of evidence of Christian, I'm sorry, of pagan gods in many of these different scenes. And this was literally an arch that Constantine commissioned. Yes. Yes. Right next to the Colosseum. Right next to the Colosseum. Yeah. Furthermore, John, the Flavians were some of the biggest persecutors of Christians. The biggest oh, persecutors he, of like, Christians. Constantine like had Flavius uh, on his name, right? He, like he, he had it. Yes. Yeah. He actually put this name in his name to give, you know, some kind of hat tip to the Flavians. 
So some sources say like that he was born Flavius, but even still, if the Flavians were the biggest persecutors of Christians and you're calling yourself Christian, you'd probably nix that name from, from existence. Right. Because like, why be associated with them? But he's, you know, proudly kind of flouting this name. Um, and I mean, what does that mean? I mean, what does this really mean? He's got pagan symbolism in there. All the shields. Now, remember, in this vision, he sees the vision of the cross. There was no, there was no scene on there of him seeing a vision at all. So there's no reference to it on the arch, which you'd think that he would do, he would have on there. And the shields that were said to have been painted with a cross, there's all of the shields do not have crosses on them. Right. Well, yeah. Them. I mean, just just the whole the, the whole fact that he's got um, other gods there clearly portrayed gods from the past, plural would be heathenistic in in Christianity and he wouldn't put it there. He just wouldn't. He couldn't. There's no way. So, I mean, right there, it shows you what his belief system actually was. And at the very least, it shows you that this was a transition period where everything was accepted at this time, right? But he is making no, absolutely no reference to any type of Christian belief here. Yeah. Right. Which I mean is I mean it's pretty strange. Couldn't it? but he's he's doing a lot of work to have it rewritten into the history of what really happened at that battle. So we've got a lot of different things going on here and we have this pagan symbolism that kind of keeps coming up. Now and so now we've got some scenes with Apollo on the arch. Behind this arch in the ancient past, when Constantine was ruling, he had a 12 meter tall statue of himself put behind the arch. And there are uh, marks on the, they still have the head from this statue, it was a big statue. And there are entry points for these beams to be coming out of his head. So in the time that he's ruling, he's got beams coming out of his head as if he's like a god or sort of like the avatar of Apollo here on Earth, right? But what's also strange is it's not just Apollo that has these beams that come out of his head. There are other pagan gods that are also the god of the sun where there are beams coming out of their head like this. And the, the most notable one is the god Mithra. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but the elite, the ruling elite at the time, all were devout to this thing that was called the cult of Mithraism. And they're finding now that where these churches were built, these Christian churches were like the soldiers were, were worshiping, that there were smaller temples built near those churches for the elites who were still worshiping Mithraism to have their rituals in there. Right. So they're they're So you're talking about a Christian church and underneath it, you've got a Mithraic temple. <laughs> All across the Roman empire. Right. The massive Roman empire. We're talking about Christian churches with secret hidden Mithraism churches or temples, whatever you want to call them. Who was this god? Mithra is the question next, right? Yeah, Mithra was was thought to be a um, a deity, a god, one of the many gods 
that come out of Zoroastrianism, uh, primarily out of Iran. I mean, this this is actually a little bit contested. If you get into the these the people who are studying history on this matter, they can. There are some facets who contest this and don't necessarily think that it came out of Zoroastrian. But the thing is, is that when you get into the symbology of Mithra, so he's he's the, the main thing that they focus on is the act of him killing a bull. Right. That's like their iconography. There's a main iconography and Mithra's there. He's looking away from the bull in some kind of sorrow. And he's got the the sun coming you know, out of his head. Um, and and next to him <clears throat> in some of the iconography is Osiris. Literally, Osiris is next to him from the God from of the Egyptian, sun. Exactly. The God of the sun from Egyptian mythology. So so. Their their whole thing is is about this god who killed the bull, and they relate this killing of the bull as part of a sacrifice that they also partake um, partake in in order to, I guess, have their sins uh, cleared out, cleaned out, right? So so you start to see these parallels in Mithraic beliefs with Christian beliefs. Now we don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg here, or we don't know what's going on on the surface. Yeah. Um, but what's really, you know, fascinating here is that these types of, um, ceremonies were occurring in concurrence with the Christian ceremonies. And, and the thing with, with, with Mithraism is that it was at least at the end of it. It was a it was a religion, a cult that it, noblemen, kings, and warriors subscribe to, right? So you you have this in a sense secret society around it that is not of the masses of people. The masses of people are shifting towards Christianity, while these people still held to the old gods. And these people were the ones that conquered lands, the ones that were the rulers. So you've got this really interesting and strange juxtaposition of these two things sort of like next to each other. Yeah. That right there is the most interesting and curious thing about this whole thing. And, and the fact that Mithraism literally goes back and 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 pulls from other ancient religions. It's it's the pantheon of gods here we're talking about. So this is the most fascinating thing about it to me. Well, yeah, and, and just based off of a few things that you just said to fill everyone in a little bit, why was Osiris seen with Myth Mithra? It's because the slaying of the bull and the blood from the bull was supposed to be a resurrection of oneself. And so there you go. Yeah. Right. So for for these soldiers who are going into battle constantly, we're talking about the Roman Empire. So it's an empire of conquering. They're going into battle. They don't know whether they're going to live the next day. You know, this idea of resurrecting is a really an important one for them because they want to believe that they can come back somehow, even if it's in an afterlife, right? So they're they're devoting them. They're they're devoted to this Mithra character or this Osiris character or both. And then we see that Apollo is also involved in this somehow. Are they all the same? I mean, we don't know. Right, right. This is where it gets absolutely fascinating because they're living in a world in a time that's changing and and shifting to 
I would say henotheism, not polytheism. Henotheism is the picking in, of one God and putting that as superior to the other gods while you're forgetting about the rest. Henotheistic uh, religion, and, and that's what I find most fascinating because this is like the turning point here on the earth of, of shifting. People call it monotheistic, but, but really it's henotheistic because those other gods were still being worshipped, right? And, and, and those other gods were ones that came out of um, Egypt, ones that came out of all of the old lore, right? You've got um, even Ra. They even, they, they even have spoken about Ra, which I find fascinating because Amen, Amen, Ra, right? And what do Christians say? Amen. I know. I can never right? figure so it out. So you're getting this, getting this like mixing beginning to occur, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Like one of the strangest things I found about Mithraism is that it was like the OG secret society. They refused to write anything out. They had degrees of, of, um, of sort of, what do you call that? Like Masonic degrees? Yeah. Yeah. Degrees of ascension, I guess, uh, within the Mithra uh, or Mithraism um, cult. And they would not talk about it. They would not write it down outside of their meetings. So we have very little written evidence of the myth, Mithraism cult, but we do have temples and statues that show these things and other symbols. And one of those symbols is this hat. I don't recall what the name of this hat is, but it's like the Smurf hat. I cure hefty of his rudeness, clumsy of his clumsiness. I'd make every Smurf perfect, like me. That's it. That's exactly what I'll do. It's the Phrygian hat. So this is this is what it looks like for anyone who's wondering. There's a bunch of different depictions of this and a lot of different art. But any anytime you see this hat, we're talking about the elites who were a part of this Mithraism cult. Yes, Papa Smurf. It's Papa Smurf. Anyone who was a part of this, these cult activities and these elites would wear these all the time, would have this front forward facing hat. And that would show you what their belief truly was. This Arch of Constantine that we see, that you can get close enough to see, has figures in it and they have these hats on them. He was yeah. clearly saying what he believed in the symbolism of the arch. Right, right. I mean, even later on, when you get into some of the Renaissance paintings and the three wise men, right? Um, to, they have those too. Headed, they're wearing those hats. Yeah, and, and now, why is that relevant? Well, the, the magis, these magis were considered to be coming from the East, right? And the Mithraism cult was strongest in the East. So the idea was that these either Christianity was highly infiltrated by this, or they didn't know any better. And they just thought these were three wise men from a previous sort of culture. I mean, that's also a possibility, right? They're, they're, they're kind of everywhere. And I mean, it does make sense that the elites would be practicing something other people were not aware of. You know, it's a it's a quiet thing uh, while they're observing what's happening here. This is the Arch of Septimius Severus. This character here was <coughs> a 
also a Roman emperor, Septimius Severus. So this that that just shows evidence that this thing was everywhere in that culture. I think laying the foundation of this emperor, Constantine, who he was, and I think the question really is, or that or that we have at the end of this was, was this guy really playing the crowd? Was he was he just being smart, seeing a a growing Christianity? And he was trying to embrace this and take control of it. Or was he actually a devout Christian who had an amazing vision, which gave him a definitive win over uh, Maxentius? And so what, John, did, I think you guys looked into this vision. Like, what, what happened here? Yeah, the remote viewing data surrounding the vision was nothing. <laughs> nothing. I mean, he, he did not, as far as I can see <clears throat> in the data, there was no vision. There was no vision at all. In fact, it was like the data went to basically talking about a, a, an idea of engineering minds, engineering people with with specific ideas rather than anything like actually happening. There was no like spiritual thing going on. There was no, there was no nothing. I mean, I don't even know what to say. It was just, it was just blank. It was just empty. And instead going the path of like what we would call social engineering ultimately. So I would say that, you know, according to the data, no, he didn't have a vision. This did not happen. He was, he was, Obviously, you know, when you look at the the temple construct or the the arch construct and what's in there, that was his spirituality. That was his line. It wasn't Christianity. That was done for the people. That was done for something totally different. You know, there have been so many paintings about Constantine and him having these visions in in like throughout the Renaissance. I mean, we're talking about massive commissioned paintings here that people have been looking at for years and years and none of it happened. The, the, these paintings, you know, they were basically, um, it was like the entertainment of the time. It was the newspaper of the time. Ultimately right. paintings. it's like, this is how you get people to just embed it in their mind and think it's from the past, truly from the past because that's how people communicated. So, you know, it's like TV, right? I mean, if, if I lived back then, I would just be standing in front of these paintings, just imagining what happened. This is what they told me what happened. It's like our current news media. They, they can't lie to you, right? So, mm. so we think. They tell you the truth, this is, and this is the truth. So, but it wasn't true. No, not at all. There's a there's a there's a good one right there. This is Raphael, man. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing painting. Like, how could you not like want to believe that this happened after looking at this painting? And like Raphael wasn't like a. uh, Yeah, like this guy was like legit. I mean, he's one of the best in history, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there it is. Like he's seeing this this cross in the sky. He's having this like 
amazing supernatural experience. This is so meaningful to the Christian world because Constantine is the one that ended the persecution of the Christians, you know, which is a good thing. I mean, that is a good thing that he did. I don't want to take away from that. However, was he doing it because there was no controlling Christian growing? It was Christians that ended it. Like giving this to Constantine instead of it being like, no, we we actually ended this because we grew too much. Right. Well, you know, I mean, think about think about the Vikings and the Norsemen when Christianity began to get introduced to them. I mean, they viewed Christianity as something that's trying to kill their way of life, kill their their gods, right? right? And and I imagine, I imagine that that was the same attitude of any pre-Christian culture and Christianity coming in that they felt as though they were going to end up killing their gods off and, and their belief system. So, uh, you know, there's going to be some of them who want to protect that. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody protects their, their belief their system, belief system. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to, all kinds of different people of different uh, faiths and a common thread among them are like, Oh, if you don't believe this, you, you can't be saved or you can't go to heaven or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, what do you say to that? <laughs> you just, you well, belief, belief systems become part of our self identity. And if, if that identity is challenged, that's, that makes you disappear and you're going to fight to survive the challenging of your own identity, right? This is, this is, you know, at least you can look at it a couple different, different ways, but from the perspective of the everyday person, how do you get people involved in warring in general? Well, you have another culture challenge their belief system. I mean, not, it's a little bit different these days, but in the past it was like this culture and these two cultures have different ideas about how to live. And so it's going to challenge belief systems. And that's how you get people into war. They're trying to change the way you live, which is an affront to your own identity. And if you don't have that identity, you don't exist. So we got to fight and kill so that we can retain this idea of what we are. Well, you guys, we're um, coming to an end on this episode. However, in our next episode, we are going to get into some really, really crazy conversations because we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea. We're going to talk about what really happened there, uh, this battle that, you know, over Christendom, really. And then we're going to get into the dates and the symbols within Christianity and Christmas specifically, how Saturnalia um, relates to it. And then are there even more nefarious, more ancient things that have come into play here? So if you're interested in this episode, please let us know. Uh, we'd love to know what you guys think. Uh, of course, you know, this is a very, I would have to say when you're dealing with history, especially ancient history like this, I think we've done our legwork here, but there's so much involved that you can never have the entire full picture. So just take this with a grain of salt and let us know if we missed anything. And, uh, and a in a future episode, you never know, we might get back to this. So we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely, um, bring it back in if we've missed something. Uh, but John, thanks so much for being with us. And, uh, for those of you at home, we hope you thought this episode was as out of this world as we did. 